Welcome to the Red Door Church Sermon Podcast. Red Door Church is a church seeking to transform the city of Pretoria by the power of the gospel. We are distinctly mission-minded, community-cultivating, and city-loving. Please enjoy this week's sermon, and don't forget to follow and continue the conversation by sharing with those around you. First time, as you probably saw on the screen, we're busy with a series called Worthy as we're journeying through the book of Philippians. It's this guy, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, and his central verse and the central theme of the book is living lives worthy of the gospel. And maybe simply put, or, or, or a good question to start off with this morning, is asking with a conundrum, what's more important? It, is it knowledge and theory, or is it experience? And which should come first? You know, it's a difficult question to answer because most of us, when you start off looking for a job, what is the requirements of having a job? Just coming out of a tertiary, a tertiary institution or maybe out of school, normally what you would do is you would apply for a job and they say, we need this position, you need these qualifications or skills, and you always need three years of experience. And so the question is, how does anyone ever start out with a workforce? And, and probably why that is always put on some form of job requirement is because people recognize that experience or practice is actually super important. You, you've often heard the slogan that practice what you preach, meaning that in a sense it doesn't help that you only know the theory of something you need the ability to put those things into practice you need the ability to actually use the knowledge that you have and so christian this morning if you're a christian the question is do you know how to do that do you know how to put into practice the theory that you know about the gospel all the things that you heard about the story of Jesus and of the cross and what it means for our life and what it means for our identity and how we find our identity in him, what does that mean for us tomorrow morning? As you struggle to get kids out of bed, as you sit in traffic and people cut you off, as you've got to actually get up for your 7.30 class. I know you guys don't, but <laughs> hypothetically. If you were to get up for your class, how do you put into practice? How does the truth of the gospel motivate us to not just motivate, but actually give us some practical advice to do these things? Well, this is exactly what Paul is getting to in this text this morning. It is almost part two of a text that we were busy with last time as we were journeying through Paul saying, well, the way that we should start this journey of putting things into practice, the theological word for this is what we call our sanctification. It's Christians being transformed in the same image of God. Well, the way that we should start is by relying on Jesus's righteousness and not your own. Meaning, we don't stand on my own accomplishments. I rely on that which Jesus accomplished on the cross. Through grace, he gives us this new identity. That was kind of like the starting point. It helps us to start this journey. And then we ended last week with Philippians 3 verses 10 to 11. This is why we want to do this. This is why we want to make sure we hold on to righteousness. This is why we want to make sure that we put the theory into practice. Verse 10 and 11 says, So that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection 
from the dead. So this is why we're doing it. And this is what's true of those who hold on to Jesus' righteousness. That's where we're heading. That's the end goal. It's a glorious finish line. It's, it's this place where we're going to finish, where we're always going to be with Jesus himself, where we're going to experience this power and where we won't die a second time. We will have eternal life. Not just heaven is in a place of clouds, a real place, earth being remade. And we're going to rule over this earth. You're going to have an actual job that God is going to give you. And we're going to do this for all eternity. And it's glorious. However, when we start today's text, we see that Paul very quickly brings us back to reality. Yes, that's our goal. And yes, we are righteous in Jesus. But how do we, what's true for this journey right now? Look at what Paul says at the beginning of our passage in verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect. So what Paul is starting today's text with is saying, I'm very clear about the end destination, and I'm very clear about the starting point, but let's get one thing straight. We're not there yet. We're still on this journey. Because we're a Christian, we know what we're going, but we're not there yet. We have the theory the message of the gospel, that's where we started. We have the model and motivation within the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have the community to help us on this journey. This is the church. We even have the reward waiting for us at the end of the finish line. We have everything that we need for this journey. Now we have to still run the race. We do still need to practice what we preach. Paul understands that there's a difference between being found righteous in God, or fancy theological word, is the imputed righteousness, meaning that which Jesus accomplished on the cross for those who believe in him, he now gives to you. So you don't have your own righteousness, you have that of Christ. So that's true. That's your status and your identity. However, what we now have to do on earth is hold on to that identity and ensure that the rest of our lives reflect that identity. That's in effect what it means to be a Christian. How to advance the gospel by allowing that truth to now change your behavior, change the way that you relate to the people and to the surroundings around you. We still need to run this race. We still need to witness and bear fruit and have lives that are fundamentally characterized as lives that are saved by grace. So, two super practical things. Paul's getting practical this morning. Two practical things of how we can do this. Tomorrow morning as you wake up, two principles that you're going to start with. The one is what we call the goldfish theory and the second is going to be the imitation game. You guys got that? So it's going to be the goldfish theory. I'm making it fun this morning. And the imitation game. So let's start with the goldfish. Read with me from verses 12 onwards. Paul is saying, But I press on to make it my own, because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature 
think this way. And if anyone of you thinks otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul says, I press on to make it my own, to finish the race well. Why? Because Christ has made me his own. Once again, we see this principle of what enables us to run the race. Every athlete at the beginning of a big race, especially an endurance race, that a marathon distance or even longer, no matter how well they've prepared, no matter how well they've exercised and trained for this race, every athlete has butterflies at the beginning of the race. Why? Because they're still unsure if they're going to finish this race. Christians are different. Even at the beginning of our race, if we believe in God and in Jesus, we know we can finish this race. Why? Not because of our effort, but because Christ has made us our own. And so that should encourage us to actually then live different lives and be able to attempt things and to attempt sanctification. And that's why then Paul says, I forget what lies behind and I strain to what lies ahead, pressing forward. And it's important to note that Paul forgets what lies behind. Well, what is behind Paul? What are the things that he wants to forget to help him focus on Christ, on the goal? Well, two things. First and foremost, which is super important for Paul to recognize, the thing that will help him change his life practically is that it is our sin. Family, we've got to remember not only has God forgiven your sin, it says that he has removed it from us as far as the east is from the west. Hebrews 8.12 says, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. God doesn't remember our sins. Not only forgives it, he doesn't remember our sins, and neither should we. Dwelling on our past, and especially on our past sins, robs us of the ability to focus on the grace of God. We should mourn our sin, don't get me wrong. We should acknowledge where we've done things wrong, what we've done wrong, and we should mourn those sins. But as we turn to Christ, we should actually very quickly forget those sins. A person by the name of Brooks, I'm not entirely sure what's his full name, but he says it the, the, this way. He says, Satan causes Christians to pour more and muse more over their sin than over their Savior. The question is why? Why do we do that? Why do we dwell more on our mistakes and less on the freedom and forgiveness that God gives us? Where we, well, when we do that, it keeps us in a dark hole where we can't experience the grace of God. And then if we can't experience God's grace, we can't grow as Christians. We can't grow in our sanctification. And family, the problem is focusing on our sin is a kind of self righteousness. The idea that I need to punish myself a little bit more, that I need some extra punishment for what I've done, it's from there that we get the expression, you crucify yourself. Why do we do that? Well, you only crucify yourself as a Christian if you believe that Jesus' crucifixion wasn't enough. That somehow, well, that's at least subconsciously what we're communicating. You've got to top up the suffering. You've got to top up the righteousness that Jesus gave us on the cross. 
And so you dwell on your sin. And you dwell on punishing yourself. Thinking that you're achieving more righteousness, but actually refuting the work of Jesus on the cross. And that's what Satan wants. He just wants you in that space where you actually can't grow and move forward and grow in the love of Christ and just fixating on your brokenness and on your sin. And this is a lie right out of hell. Jesus is enough. But more than that, his payment was enough. His forgiveness is enough. And that's why we can forget about our sin and focus on him. But it's not just the past failures and the sin that Paul wants to forget about. Ironically, it's also his successes that he wants to have a very short-term memory about. Obviously, we continuously try and remember that we are saved by grace and not as a result of works. And not that we don't celebrate when we succeed or conquer something. And I'm not just talking about the spiritual life, but in life as well. When we get our degrees or when we get a promotion, when we do well in life, we should celebrate those things. We should encourage one another. We should encourage one another when there's victory over sin. When we actually see changed behavior, those are things that we want to testify and witness about. But then we want to forget about it. And we want to move on. Why? Because we don't want to fall into the trap of now relying on those past successes. We don't want to fall in the trap of thinking that we've now made it, that I am perfect, that I've already reached the goal. The mini battle might be won, but the war is still raging, family. I'm not going to be the one-hit wonder. I'm not going to celebrate winning the opening match of the World Cup. I've got a bigger vision in mind. I want to win the World Cup. And so as a team or even as this family on the race, halfway through the marathon and you're grabbing some water, you want to look back and say, yes, I've come halfway, but then we want to forget about it because we've got somewhere that we're going. And, and we see how being conceited and actually Christians becoming prideful, we become less compassionate towards others and we actually think that we need grace less. And so similar to sin taking our gaze off of Christ and dwelling in our mistakes. Also, if we dwell on our successes and everything that we've achieved, it also takes our eyes off Christ and the need that we have daily to be found in Him. And so that's why I like to call this the goldfish principle. You know, it's been said that a goldfish has a three-second memory. Not actually true, because they have to remember what food looks like and eat food. They've got to remember what danger is and flee danger. So rather when we talk about the goldfish theory or principle, what we want to say is we should have selective short-term memory, our SSM. Now I'm sounding very technical, which I like. But let's call it our selective short-term memory. There are some things that we should forget pretty quickly, and then there are things and principles that we should hold on to indefinitely. And this is the mantra of the Christian life. The thing that we should remember is that our righteousness, you being right with God, you being on the right path, is not seated within you or your own deeds or your own ability to obey the law. Rather, it is seated within the work of Christ. Not because of who you are, but because of what he's done. This truth should guide everything in your life. 
the way that we interpret both successes and failures, the way that we interpret both adversity and times of good grace, the way that we view ourselves, the way that we view others, the way that we view situations, it's all through the lens that God is being gracious and good and powerful and in control. This is the memory of the Christian. We have very short-term memories when it comes to our sins, our failures, and even our successes. This, just in, this, this is so important because having this way of thinking about grace in relation to God not just influences our relationship with Him, but it also influences the relationship that we have with one another. I experienced this firsthand this week. It's interesting how much grace we need within relationships and in conflict situations. We, we know that as long as conflict is unresolved, you know, you can't get to a place where there's actually good communication and a good relationship between one another. And not just holding something against one another. You actually need to extend the grace of God to the other person. You need to accept grace yourself. You need to forget if you were the one that's in the wrong. If you continue to dwell on that, it's still going to be awkward in the relationship, Right? And so it's interesting, we need to accept that grace that God has for us, release that, and then allow the other person to forgive us so that we can move on to a reconciled relationship. The longer we think we need to punish ourselves, the longer it actually takes for the relationship to be restored. And so the way that we view ourselves not just influences our relationship with God, but it influences our ability as a community to love one another. And so similarly, we want to imitate God. We want to be the same in which we forgive and forget one another. Yes, there's wisdom and there's, yes, there's things that we want to learn. We don't want to be naive in situations. But we definitely don't want to be those people that hold things against one another because it just kills relationship. And family, this is at the end of the day what Paul calls maturity. That's how the church should measure maturity. And that's what re what's required of Christian leaders. It's interesting. I'm pretty sure if we were to ask one another, what do you think is a mature Christian? Who do you think should lead a group or a church? We'll probably say, well, it's the person who knows the most about the Bible. It's the person who can lead well. Um, it's the person that's life looks like it's in order. Whereas the biblical principle is actually the person, once he messes up or even succeeds, how quickly he can come back and just rely on the gospel. You know, a lot of us, we, we like children... <laughs> doing things wrong, and then we run away, we hide from our parents until they find us, and then we get a spanking, and we come back. M maturity is growing up and saying we're hiding less and less, or for shorter amounts of time. Maturity is growing and accepting that gospel, and then obviously as that changes us, it also changes our behavior, our patterns, and when we sin, but it's especially true for when we sin. How long are you going to let the awkward silence stay between you and God before you get back to him. How many times have you not been able to do Bible study or pray because you did something bad and you're kind of mini-punishing yourself before you get back to God? That's still an immature way of thinking, not accepting the gospel. And so maturity is not our lack of sin or our inability to sin, 
but rather the ability to quicker grasp onto the gospel and to believe that. For yourself and for the people around you. That's who we want to lead one another. And so this is the first practical step that we need to take each day. Every day when we wake up, we need to forget about the previous day in terms of sin and successes and failures. Today is the day that the Lord has made. Let us be glad and rejoice in it. His mercies are anew every morning. His grace is new every morning. We say those things, this is how we apply it. You know what's great? Tomorrow it's going to be a new day as well. It's only once we start doing that we can see actual change in our lives. That we'll be practicing what we're preaching. That's our goldfish memory. Now, point two, the imitation game. We read verses 17 to 21. Paul says, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I'm often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glory, glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul says, keep your eyes on me and imitate those who walk like me. Why? Because, man, there's many. There's been many that Paul says that haven't done this and now walk as enemy of the cross. Paul says he tells them this even with tears. Why with tears? It obviously means that he was in close relationship with these guys. They were obviously part of the faith community. At some time or another, they were professing Christians. They were probably in the same community group. In the same D group, in the same DNA group as Paul or Timothy or some of the guys within the church, sharing and talking about these things, and yet now they've drifted away from the cross. That's how serious this is. That's how necessary it is not to only know and understand the theory of the gospel, but allow it to change your heart and your life and then apply it every day to be practical about your faith. If this is simply a hobby or an interest, it's not going to last. There's no way that theory alone will make this last. We need to put some things into practice. And so the second practical step that Paul gives us is that we should play the imitation game. We should imitate those who follow Christ. We should look at their lives, how they practically, contextually understand their faith and within their context, how are they living it out. And we should get tips from them and wisdom from them and then do the same. Paul's not playing around. He's saying, imitate me. <laughs> Which from face value seems like a pretty bold statement to make. I wonder how many of us this morning would be so bold as to say, guys, here I am. Follow my life and you'll be okay. Follow my life as I follow Christ and that's what we should be doing. It almost sounds like Paul is bragging. Aren't we supposed to only follow Jesus? Yes. But contextually, here's what Paul's getting at. Look at this verse that he wrote to Timothy or this letter that he wrote to Timothy on 1 Timothy 1.15. How Paul views himself. 
He says, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves complete acceptance. To this world, the Messiah came. Oof, that's not all right. That is the weirdest translation in the world. That is the wrong translation. But <laughs> it stopped me in my tracks right now. But it's Christ came to save sinners. And then Paul says, of whom I am the worst or the foremost. And so Paul isn't saying here that he's got the perfect life. In fact, he is very much aware of the fact that he is a sinner in need of grace. He is by no means telling the church, look at my good life, look at how good I am, do what I'm doing. He's saying, see the way that I need to cling to Christ because I'm so broken, because I'm so sinful, I know I'm in desperate need of the gospel. If it were up to me, I would mess up, I would flame out, I would burn out. But in spite of my brokenness, in spite of my sin, I cling to Christ. And so Paul is mature in his thinking. He is running and finding shelter, not in his own deeds and in his own goodness, but rather in the goodness that Jesus provides. And he wants the rest of the church to grow in this kind of maturity. And the only way that we can grow in this kind of maturity, yes, is to have a short-term memory, but then also start watching one another how we do that, how we apply that, how we actually do that in the different spheres of our life. Family, at the end of the day, this is what we call discipleship. It would be scary or conceited if we called people to look at our accomplishments. But what we should be doing as a church is allowing people so close to our lives that they can see our brokenness. And within our brokenness, so that they can see how we have a need for Christ and how we apply that grace. How we find our way back to Christ from our position of brokenness not from a position of having things sorted out. You know, those people don't exist. <laughs> people will sort it out lives. It only seems so because you're standing a long way away. But the closer we get to people, we see that some people are just better than others in heightening <laughs> their brokenness. But we're all broken. It just depends how close we stand to one another, whether we're able to see the brokenness or not, whether we actually allow one another to be part of one another's lives. What we do have, it's not necessarily people whose lives are sorted out, but we definitely have people who have grown in maturity in Christ. People that have, over time, in different contexts and different situations, have learned through pain and suffering and not trusting Jesus, now what they should rather be doing, how they should rather run quicker to Christ, because hiding from Him caused pain. And so they've grown in maturity, and they know how to apply it in different situations. And those people that are now mature in Christ in those specific areas are able to invite other people into those spaces and say, I still don't have it sorted out, but I know now the shortcut to get to Jesus. How to quicker get there and how to apply grace within this situation. Yet, all of us have this degree of maturity and yet not maturity in every scenario and every context of this world. We've, we've maybe figured it out how to apply the grace of God in a particular area of our life, but we all 
need to grow in maturity in different areas of our lives, and we all have some maturity in specific areas as well. Family, we don't have Paul, and we don't have the elders of Philippi. We only have one another. So who are you going to follow? Who are we going to imitate? Can't just be me. Please don't. But we need brothers and sisters that can shepherd one another and point one another to Christ by sharing their life experiences. And so the first question is, family, who are you imitating? Who are you closely following in the way that they're actually interacting with life? Many of us have mentors within the business world or academic world or whatever world you want to follow people. All of us, when Elon Musk says something, we pay attention, or this person says something, we pay attention because they've obviously made it. Who are you following that's doing that in the Christian world? And I'm not talking in worldly success. I'm talking in Christian maturity. If you're dating and thinking about marriage, which marriage couple have you approached and say, hey, please speak into our lives? What should we be thinking about? If, if you're single, who, who are you approaching that's been single for a long time saying, hey, I've got these struggles. What are we, how should I think about this? Who, who are you approaching specifically to learn from and how to apply the grace of God in a situation? And then, family, not only who are you following and imitating, but who are you being an example to? This is the more difficult one. In the imitation game, we're not just to imitate one another. We are to be imitatable. Is that a word? I don't know. It is now. Where are you giving the opportunity that someone can look into your life and see how you believe in the grace of God? Are you studying right now? Have you kind of navigated some form of, you know, how do I follow Jesus as a student? There's unique challenges and temptations as a student that I've got to deal with and that I've already figured out. Who are you allowing into that space that they can learn from you? It can't be Temba and Secha. They, they haven't studied for a long time. The only people that can be these examples to other students are if you're in that context. And so you've got a job to do. You've got an example to set to those around you. No one else is going to do it. God has given you this calling. Are you in the business world? Are you an entrepreneur? In what ways have you learned to follow Christ? What are some of the things that you've learned to apply the grace of the gospel? In what ways have you learned Christian maturity? In what ways are you inviting people to come and learn with you? Striking up conversations with fellow believers and Christians. Are you a dad? <laughs> In what way are you sharing with other dads? In what way are you creating a community where it's able that we can imitate one another? Are you retired one right now? In what way? You've got a wealth of knowledge. You've got a lifetime to give to the church. In what way are you helping not just other people within that are also retired and within your age group, but actually giving back to what God has given you over generations? Man, we, we especially in South Africa, we've got this problem of broken families, but I think it's spiritually true as well. We you know, we are a lot of orphaned spiritual children where we don't have these spiritual mothers and fathers plowing back into our lives. 
Well, we need to start and change this generation. It's, it needs to start with us if we need to turn the tide. And family, the only way that we're going to be able to do this is if, is if we live in close proximity with one another. If you invite people into your space. Now, this is difficult because we know what our spaces look like. It's like hosting a lot. You can only keep the house clean for so long. But on some stage or another, when you invite people over, it's going to be chaotic and the dishes won't be done and it's just going to be a mess. And you're like, ah, I'm sorry, this, this is me. And this is figuratively should be true of our lives as well, that we invite people close enough so that they can see the dirty laundry and the dirty dishes. Not sitting on purposely, but as we then mess up, they can also see how we ask forgiveness, accept forgiveness, forget the sin, believe the grace, and then move on. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. How, do, how did you do that? How did you give your grace, yourself that much grace as a parent when you once again messed up, when you didn't have enough patience with your children, when you fell behind with your studies, when you didn't have the necessary discipline? How, how did you believe the grace of God that quickly? Like, man, it's not me, but this is what I've learned. This is how I'm applying it in this specific situation. Allow people close enough so that they can see the dirty dishes. And what we will show one another in our imitation and discipleship is not to live for the short-term pleasures, but actually for the long-term goal of gaining Christ. Family, this is what it is. We're showing a different alternative to the world out there. Verse 19, Paul says that these who have turned away from God, these who now walk as enemies of Christ, their God is their belly, meaning that it's the immediate pleasures that they're after. And boy, it looks inviting. It looks so good to live for the immediate pleasures. And it's so much more difficult to have the long-term goal in mind. And so what we've got to remind one another, even though it's long-term, even though this is a marathon that we're running and not just a sprint, that the finish line, that the goal is so much worth it. We see at the end of the race, it says, as we get to the end, God will transform our lowly bodies. To be like his glorious body. Everything that you're experiencing now, maybe it's loneliness, maybe it's abandonment, maybe it's depression, maybe you have physical ailments, maybe it's just being tired and experiencing the brokenness of the world, maybe it's your own sin and your own brokenness and just being weighed down, never getting to the end of it. God will set us free from all of that. Imagine being in a space where you can live and cultivate things on earth, being set free. This is not if, family, this is when. Holding on to Christ, this is our reality. This is where we're heading. And it's worth putting into practice what we're preaching about the grace of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, this morning we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for community. We're thankful for song. We're thankful for worship. Even as a long weekend that we can gather as your people, Father, we this morning desperately need you to work in our lives. We know that the only reason why we can attempt to live differently, 
where we can attempt to get to the goal, to get to you, Jesus, is because you have already made us your own. And so even as we feel despondent, we, it feels like we don't have the energy to apply anything, we pray this morning that first and foremost, we would be encouraged and heartened by the fact that you have made us your own. And Father, we then pray that in light of that, we would forget what happened yesterday. That we would have this single-minded vision of what you have for us in store. That we would be a community that is honest about our brokenness. We're messy. And yet we have you, and for that we love you, and we thank you, Lord. Do this so that we can experience lives to the full, but ultimately within the fullness of our lives that we would glorify your name. And we pray this for your glory. Amen.